wondered what it would be like if our podcast teamed up with another podcast and produced a super podcast? Stay tuned. It's the Media Law Podcast and Bang to Rights. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Media Law Podcast. For this episode, we've teamed up with our friends from the Bang to Rights podcast, which is a podcast based at Manchester Metropolitan University, and which focuses on legal and ethical matters relating to the media from a journalism perspective. What you're about to listen to is a discussion about the interrelationship between journalism, law and democracy, particularly in the context of the UK general election campaign. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this crossover episode of the Media Law Podcast and Bang to Rights. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Bang to Rights. I'm Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm joined for this very, very, very special edition of Bang to Rights by um, Tom Bennett from the Media Law Podcast. Tom is a uh, uh, lecturer in uh, in law at the City Law School at the City University in London. Hi, Tom. Hello. And I'm also joined from uh, from our newsroom by Ellie Shamber Critchley, a regular guest on, on our podcast, obviously, uh, uh, from uh, Manchester Metropolitan Uni. Hi, Ellie. Morning. Good morning. Um, we've done this. We're doing this special edition, really. Um, Tom and I have been watching one another. We set up uh, our podcast uh, at around about the same time. I think Bang to Rights got in there slightly earlier, but uh, it seemed like a it seemed like a good idea to actually do a link up because um, Tom, we cover similar things, but we take a different approach to it. We come from a different direction to similar sorts of area, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, because uh, myself and, and Paul, who are usually front and centre of the Media Law podcast are, are both lawyers uh, by training and, and uh, academics specialising in, in that field of law, which is pretty niche. There aren't very many of us in the country, but there, there are, there's a small committed grouping or, or cult, I guess, depending on your perspective, <laughs> of us who do that. Um, but yes, uh, and, and you guys look at this from the, the journalistic perspective, which I think all too often can go missing in the eyes of lawyers who tend to uh, think of journalists as things to be regulated um, rather than <laughs> human beings and experts in their own right, uh, in their own field. So um, it's, it's uh, I, th- I think, an ideal opportunity for us to do something that's all the rage in, in comic book TV series at the moment, isn't it? Crossover episodes. Um, we can bring our universes together. Yeah, and, and actually I've heard and, and seen quite a lot of crossover episodes of of a number of different podcasts. So I uh, the the Talking Politics podcast, for example, which I'm an avid listener of, they did a crossover episode with 538, the politics podcast in the United States, uh, a couple of months ago. And then even Cycling Podcast, that I'm another big fan of, I've, I've, I've heard crossover episodes of them. So, I mean, I think it is, I think it is a... It's a real thing in in the podcast uh, environment, in the podcast world, that people are sharing a lot of material and sharing ideas and actually sharing broadcasting, which is great. I think it's really good to see and hear. I quite agree. Well, actually, we one of the other reasons for doing it this week um, in the middle of the election campaign is we actually have a real crossover story in the sense that um, the, the decision by ITV to host uh, a, a, a leaders' debate 
which uh, took place last week. We're recording this on Monday, the, uh, get my dates right, Monday the 25th. Um, so last week, ITV hosted a debate between uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, and Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition, which excluded, well, it excluded the head of the, the Lib Dems, um, Joe Swinson, and excluded the, the leader of the Scottish National Party, Nicola Sturgeon. And both of them went to court to challenge that decision. Um, but, but Tom, the, the, the High Court ruled that out of order. They basically said we had no jurisdiction over this. Yes, um, the the High Court, the Divisional Court of the High Court, um, threw out the application on every single possible ground that it was brought on. So it was a very swift and very comprehensive defeat for the Lib Dems and the SNP. Um, the the primary reason why the application failed was that the court ruled that ITV is not amenable to judicial review, which basically means that they are not a body um, that the court has any jurisdiction to scrutinize the activity of. Only public bodies are subject to judicial review. There are some narrow circumstances in which private bodies exercising public functions can be subject to uh, judicial review. Um, but TV companies uh, are, are, are not those sorts of bodies. There's a bit of a question mark over where the BBC fits. The courts have never expressly ruled whether the BBC is a private or public body for the purposes of judicial review. It's kind of been assumed these days that the BBC would be treated as a public body. But ITV, um, Independent Television Limited, is exactly what it sounds like. It's an independent company. It's not amenable to judicial review. So the, the court threw that one out. Um, but there were also other grounds where the court said, even if ITV had been amenable to review, on the other grounds, the application would have failed. Yeah, and so the, the BBC might fall into that category because of, well, because of the licence fee, I guess, and it's public, the, the fact that it is accountable um, to the licence fee payers and it's also accountable in, in lots and lots of other ways. So that they, I mean, in, in lots of ways, the BBC does walk and talk like a, a, a publicly accountable organisation, doesn't it? It it does. Um, I mean, the the license fee is an obvious um, part of that, but it's the very founding purpose of the BBC is to be a state broadcaster. Um, its establishment by royal charter means it is not a company in the traditional sense. Um, it is it is it's a rather different kind of enterprise. It's been established by the state in order to fulfil certain state broadcasting functions. Um, including public service broadcasting. And so this looks like an essentially public-type vehicle, even if in many respects it operates along the same lines as a private company would in terms of the way that it, it hires people and it commissions programs and so on and so forth. It runs like a company, um, but its functions are not wholly private. Yeah. Um, and we tend to forget about some of the public stuff that the BBC obviously does. But if you think about the World Service, for instance, that's a classic bit of uh, a, a public functioning that, that, that the BBC engages in. Um, and with that comes the impartiality requirements. Now, during an election campaign, Ofcom puts impartiality requirements on all of the uh, broadcast media. Um, but outside of election campaign 
election campaigns. That's that's not so much of a requirement. It is, however, on the BBC because it's part of the BBC's charter. Yeah. So the BBC has to uh, be impartial um, whenever it's 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 giving coverage to political matters. Um, of course, there are ongoing debates as to how successfully it achieves that, but in terms of what the charter requires of it, it has to be impartial all of the time. So it's, I guess it's just something we'll have to wait and see. We will have to wait and see the full judgment. They did promise, Tom, didn't they, that they would uh, issue the judgment in full at a later date, because at the moment we just have two sides of A4, which for uh, uh, a judgment at this level is really pretty shorthand version of what we might see later on. But I guess we we know the rough framework of, of what they're operating in, that this is not justiciable in that sense. Yes, absolutely. And we, we will get a full judgment at some point. It will take some weeks for that to be put together. Staying with elections, but on a, on a slightly different tack now, we've, we've one of the things that's certainly of interest to us, and Ellie and I have been discussing this with a lot of our students, and we've been, we've been uh, trying to get our students to register to vote right across the board. Um, so uh, we had the, the figure on Friday of 300,000 people registering to vote in a single day on Friday, which I believe is a record. And of that 300,000, somewhere around 200,000 were under the age of, of 35. Um, Tom, Ellie, do you think this shows increased public interest in the election this time around as opposed to previous years? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was musing about this but when we had... Uh, Jill Goodman in, who's a photojournalist, and we were talking about waves of engagement. And certainly we've seen um, with each cohort that have come to the university, I think a much greater um, understanding and engagement <coughs> with, um, with politics in general. And I've been really surprised this year about how switched on they have been with quite micro issues around um, the general election. Um, in many ways, I think this is a cyclical thing. So um, we are seeing co cohorts of students in the same way that you had Thatcher's children um, in the early 90s and late 90s registering to vote around 97. We're starting to see the start of that generation from um, 2010 onwards becoming much keener, uh, keenly aware about um, politics in general. Um, and I think that's within the context of how they how they're living at the moment and the the choices that they they face or, or the reduced choices that they feel that they have. Um, although it's still worth bearing in mind that I think about twenty five percent of eighteen to twenty five year olds are still not registered for the general election. So we've seen that that voter surge, but there is still a key area where young people are not feeling like they need to be engaged yet. So I don't know how much our experience at a university skews things a little bit. Yeah, well, for that 25%, they have 24 hours as we're recording to, to register. I think yes. we're time, time's up tomorrow. But no, it has been interesting. And it's been interesting um, for, 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 I guess, for you and I, Ellie, as teachers, that we've run a couple of sessions with the, with the first years um, this year um, that have been particularly um particularly related to the election. And, and so I, we, we ran a mock hustings last week um, where the first-year students were very, very actively engaged in, in all of that. And we've had other sessions that this, where the students have, been, have seemed to be much more involved and much more 
interested in what's going on politically, and, and also actually, interestingly, from my point of view, interested in the, in journalism politics and uh, the, the the thought of becoming a political journalist, not necessarily a lobby journalist, but co- um, commenting on and reporting on politics, which is it's, it's great to see. And I, I just wonder whether that might be a function of the engagement generally in young people and, and students uh, arising from Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes and so on, um, and whether whether that's what we're seeing, that it's, it's actually something that's, uh, you know, it's obviously been happening since 2010, and there's a gathering of interest around political ideas and political discussion, but whether that's been focused over the summer as a result of, of uh, climate discussions and uh, the, the fact that students feel that they now potentially might play a role in all of that. But Tom, we were discussing off mic before we before we started recording about the significance of where those registrations might be clustered. So um, in London or in Leeds or in Manchester or in Glasgow or Edinburgh or wherever, and whether that would have a significant input impact on the the marginal seats where it all really, really matters this time around. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, the the the, the surge in young people registering to vote, which is undoubtedly a, a good thing for democracy, rather does fly in the face of the received wisdom we've been getting in the last few years that everyone's getting more and more turned off politics. Um, I, I think we've got a whole generation of people who are uh, upset as they might well be with the uh, political status quo, at least more engaged by it than we've seen in, in a long time. Obviously, a significant part of that has been politics seeping into the world of social media. And I think what we're, we're going to see in the, as this campaign really heats up is the use of social media to target tactical voting advice. So you've got students who are legally entitled to register to vote both at their term time address and at their home address. Um, they're obviously not entitled to vote twice, but they can register to vote in both places and then decide in which of those places to cast their single vote. Um, and with that, uh, in the world of tactical voting, that is um, often the only way uh, to really affect an election under the first-past-the-post system, I think we're going to see quite a lot of tactical voting uh, advice being given out on social media. But that is, of course, itself completely unregulated. Um, and there have already been um, some visible um, instances of upset and anger, anger from, uh, uh, from, from parties that think that certain tactical voting sites are skewing the tactical voting advice in directions that are not terribly sensible. Um, but as I say, that's unregulated. So it's, it's, it's you know, you've got the upside of social media getting more people engaged, getting more people to, to register to vote. And I think social media has played a, a, a significant role in that surge. But you also have the unregulated side of, of, of advice as to what to do with that vote once it's been registered. So we wait to see the impact of that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, the, the huge contrast. And I, get, I guess one of the elephants in the room with all of this is the fact that political advertising is very, very, very tightly controlled, as you mentioned, um, by Ofcom on, uh, for the broadcasters. Whereas we're very much in the Wild West when it comes to the social media um, platforms, because although we have seen some attempts to regulate the financing and advertising generally um, 
on Facebook in particular um, by the European Union and the um, Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee has made some progress towards a model that might apply in Britain, but it's not, it's, they're nowhere near legislating on it yet, are they? Uh, no, um, is, is, is the short answer to that. Mm -hmm. uh, any kind of media regulation is enormously politically controversial and media bodies will usually, and history shows this to be the case, will usually campaign vociferously and lobby vociferously against tighter regulation of their content. So it becomes politically expedient for parties that seek power to uh, act in ways that uh, align with the interests of the media bodies whose positive coverage they wish to court. So in the same way as we are, I, I think, very unlikely ever to see Parliament legislate for individual privacy rights beyond data protection that's mandated by the European Union. Um, I don't think we're going to see much in the way of regulation of uh, further regulation of uh, online uh, media in terms of political content, um, at least not from legislation. And there are some good reasons for that. I mean, you, people will make the valid argument that the last thing you want um, in when it comes to political speech is to allow the government of the day to be setting the regulatory standards. Um, so I mean, th there are valid arguments to be had there, but you're right. Um, I, I don't think those arguments are really going to be heard because I don't think there's going to be a legislative opportunity here. One of the things that I guess that's interesting in this field when we're talking about the election time is the decision by Twitter to, to ban political advertising. Now, um, you, you mentioned that you discussed this earlier on the, some of the areas around this on the Media Law podcast. So we can link to that in the, in the notes um, for people who want to have a, a more detailed breakdown on it. But tell, tell me what, what your view is. You, you mentioned privacy and some of the issues arising from that, Tom. But um, what do you think has been the direct impact, if there has been any direct impact, on this election campaign of Twitter kind of withdrawing from that area? I don't know about direct impact. I, I'm not really in a position to to judge that. But I do think that Twitter having decided to ban political advertising, um, whilst Facebook has not, Facebook has uh, labeled political advertising uh, and, and, and requires political adverts to identify the source of funding behind them, but it hasn't banned them at all, irrespective of their content. Uh, it, it says something about how those two companies, um, those two platforms, conceptualize freedom of political expression. Um, Facebook adopts a very classic, classical, almost classically American marketplace of ideas notion of free speech. If you allow lots of different perspectives, then the most popular ones will naturally come to the fore in the marketplace because they'll be the ones that are picked up and run with more frequently. Twitter is not behaving in the way that we would typically expect uh, an American platform um, concerned with freedom of speech to act. It's not adhering to the marketplace of ideas and the concept. It's not even um, it seems to me putting much value on, uh, uh, well, it's putting a different kind of value on political speech. It's saying 
that we do not want paid for political speech, promoted political speech. Um, or what we want is a marketplace that is devoid of the finance. Uh, so Twitter's marketplace of ideas is, is designed to be one that is not impacted upon by political finance. And I, I think that is quite remarkable. Um, it's not something I'd anticipated happening. We'll wait to see what, whether it makes a big difference. Ellie, how do you think we would be able to, to judge that? We, are, we as journalists, particularly, who are looking at the election and then on the... You know, on the on the thirteenth of December, looking at the impact that social media has had on this campaign, what's where would we be looking for the the, the main players? Who oh. who do you think would be the main players this time around? I, I think actually it's going to become much more difficult for journalists to really gauge that because <clears throat> as as there is a push towards private messaging on WhatsApp with group conversations and to private um, shared content, which is far harder to track on platforms such as Instagram. You know, you have everything out, uh, dirty washing on the line with Twitter, but with other social media platforms, it isn't as apparent. So there will, I think there is a lot of unseen influencing and campaigning going on that as we as journalists simply cannot track. So if anything, um, the, the issues around this are only going to get more problematic in telling the story of, of how this election has, has played out. So I guess what we're seeing, um, Ellie, in, in, as, a, as a consequence of that, is kind of increasing granularity, if you like, that the, the political parties are concentrating a lot of their targeting at the, I guess, maybe a couple of dozen marginal seats around the UK. Um, and and at, at that time, at, that, at this point in the campaign, rather, there is a this kind of very, very personalised, encrypted discussion going on at the level of these WhatsApp groups um, to try and influence people or for people to kind of congregate around particular ideas. I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if that is going on. I mean, it's not something that um, uh, I'm afraid being a Luddite who doesn't uh, use WhatsApp or uh, Instagram uh, myself. <laughs> I'm not familiar with um, the way that these communications work, but I'm, the broad point that you're making is that it's increasingly difficult to track the political discourse and the, the trajectory of a political discourse that's taking place out of the public eye. And we've never seen that before, well, at least not for probably several hundred years. Um, political discourse has been front and centre, um, and the only private political discourse has taken place between people talking to their neighbour and talking to their families uh, and the privacy of their own street and their own home. Um, we're not seeing, we've, we've always traditionally had political advertising, political campaigning, um, playing out in very much the public arena and with private messages and encrypted messages being able now to be targeted en masse, whether it's WhatsApp groups or Facebook targeting, um, it's playing out in a much more enclosed arena that we don't all of us have access to. And I think this is the, the major issue when it comes to, to journalism and covering the general election is that the, that sort of uh, much more closed one-to-one or one-to-many in a, in a group, um, messaging that goes on 
um, is potentially or has been shown already to use content that that is flawed. And the the traditional role of the journalist, which is speaking truth to power and maintaining impartiality and balance, and so the potential for um, the electorate to reach a access a multiplicity of, of perspectives becomes much more problematic when you you are able to maintain the bubbles that we now live in in terms of social media and our views um, that that the potential for journalism to challenge or to fact check or to highlight problematic campaigning um, is is really much more difficult and you know, I, I suppose you could say, well, for the majority of voters, this isn't an issue, that this is going on. This is a, a tiny minority uh, of people who will be have their views much skewed by problematic data. But it's being fought on, on the marginals at this much more granular level. And so I, I do have con- persisting concerns left over from um, the EU referendum and the... Um, admission by the electoral commission that they really have no no way to to monitor and control this that really how how journalism can either i'm not sure i think it raises uh an an ethical and privacy issue in my mind i mean i i remember back in the earlier part of this decade um when i was doing reporting on on some issues around um around uh, civil unrest and campaigning around all of that stuff. And I was invited onto a number of small Facebook groups, um, private Facebook groups, which gave me access to the discussion and the planning around some of that stuff. Now, I felt quite chuffed with myself as a journalist that I had that I'd been able to get the trust of the organisers of that, that they were able to include me in their Facebook groups. And I, uh, But it, it, it gave rise to the problem that I wasn't able to disclose very much of that in my my reporting, my coverage of it. And I feel actually now in a similar kind of position, being part of some of these WhatsApp groups gives you access to that discussion, but you don't want to compromise that access by speaking about it on the record or disclosing too much about the individuals who are involved in all of that. And it's a, it's like the, the position that some lobby journalists are in, but you know, at a much, much more personal level, Lobby journalism has, I guess, more or less public rules and has more or less public forums like the parliamentary lobby. Um, but it, you know, it comes with its own problems of anonymity and lack of accountability. Tom, what, what do you make of that? Do you think there are some of those privacy and, and ethical issues involved in this kind of access to social media, to private or encrypted social media groups? Okay, so this is where the legal perspective and the journalistic perspective are noticeably distinct. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say something like that. <laughs> From a lawyer's perspective, if you as journalists get into one of these groups and you discover information that you firmly believe and honestly believe to be information that is in the public interest, um, then the lawyer will say, publish it. Publish it and you'll be all right in the courts. Yeah. Um, providing that the information you publish is in the public interest in the legal sense of making uh, a, a significant contribution to a debate of general public importance and its impact 
on the privacy of individuals is not disproportionate to the public benefit that is accruing from your having published it, then legally you're going to be on safe ground. Um, but what I recognize is that for journalists, it's not just about being within the bounds of the law, although obviously you would very much like to stay within the boundaries of the law, you have a higher ethical duty to your sources. And you also, as you rightly say, want to maintain access to see if you can get something that's even more in the public interest. Um, now, obviously, the decision, the, the editorial decision whether to publish or not is not something that ethically a lawyer can advise you on. Um, but I can tell you the legal position. And if you find something of public interest on these groups, you want to publish it, chances are you're going to be A-OK -okay to do so. It's interesting. To it's really useful to have that kind of legal backing, Tom. And I think the, the ethical problems are inevitably things that people will, will have to struggle with and, and come to a conclusion with personally, individually. Um, Ellie, what, what do you reckon? Where, do, you, do you think that is going to be a, increasingly a widespread issue for, for journalists reporting in this kind of area? Well, that they feel uncomfortable about reporting on places they have access to. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, something will have to shift a little bit when it comes to to reporting and democracy. That um, the that legal backing, I think, is a really pertinent reminder, and that something has to shift in these private spaces where there is ooh, the public or the the election. Um, funding that the advertising is being discussed that there is that duty to report the story um, and that you might be in a a large whatsapp group discussing this and you as a journalist have access to this but it's a bit like in the private facebook groups when the, there is something that's being discussed and it does appear on the daily in the daily mirror in the pages with screenshots the next day this false belief that because you have a closed group, it is necessarily closed off from accountability and reporting. So there is a, perhaps a shift that needs to happen in the public perceptions as well as how, how journalists feel brave about reporting this. Interesting, fascinating stuff. Ellie, I wanted to touch on one of the things that you've been looking at in detail that kind of arises from this democracy unrest um, social media and so on, because you're just back recently from, from Hong Kong um, and you, you had a look at some of the issues around reporting the, the unrest in Hong Kong for Bang to Rights. Tell, tell us a little bit for, for, for Tom's listeners, for the Media Law Podcast, about some of the issues that, that you came across there about the way that journalists are covering what's happening in Hong Kong. Well, I mean, it's, it should be quite simple and clear-cut that um, the, the handing over of Hong Kong um, constitution for basic law, that there is the same freedom of the press that is afforded to uh, journalists in Hong Kong as we expect and enjoy in the UK. Um, however, the, the, over the last, what, well, since 1997, um, there's been growing tension about the incursions into free press and also the, the, the problems with biases in certain parts of the media. Um, that the, 
the ability to report more freely is becoming very difficult over there. Um, and there is a difficult balancing act that um, journalists in Hong Kong are having to try and maintain, which is that you need access to report on the legislature and what is happening with pro-democracy, but um, how you, where you are and access to those people, and if um, you're reporting a lot on the actions over there, how tenuous that makes your your access more widely to people like uh, press conferences with Carrie Lam or the police. So it is really difficult to be a journalist in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, but in a sense, I got, having spoken with um, Alvin Lum over at South China Morning Post and some of the freelancers there, that they're having to rein in, I think, a little bit on how much they'd like to report. Um, and certainly from an educator's perspective, you know, we have concerns about making sure that students who are training to be journalists have, have access um, to report freely over there at the same time. So I think it was the fact that I think this is going to continue, the unrest is going to continue and the incursions into free reporting will continue indefinitely in Hong Kong is the reality. Um, and I, how, how the press over there maintain that free speech, I think is very concerning. You know, we saw last week with um, the press being um, tied up alongside health workers in, um, in Polytechnic and held back from being able to report freely that, you know, that was a, a bit of a game changer and pretty indicative of, of how there have been threats to um, free reporting in Hong Kong um, and how serious that's becoming. Yeah, yeah, extremely difficult time. And uh, yeah, the, the, I, I guess the elections and the, the apparent triumph of the, the pro-democracy um, candidates in the local elections does not look like it's going to ease the situation at all, does it? From a, from a journalist perspective, you know, we the, the basic fact is that um, basic law um, has been broken, that um, free press and the reporting of um, the, the news and access to being able to report stories in um, as broadly as possible is under threat in Hong Kong. And whilst we may see a pause in um, the intensity as Carrie Lam and the Beijing administration review what's happened post the district council elections and the great losses for um, for her and Beijing in terms of councillors, um, if you talk to any journalist over in Hong Kong, they are still... Um, the concerns around the freedom and being able to report with balance is, is still there. Um, and uh, I think as a journalist in Hong Kong, it, it's a pretty frightening place to be um, because the risk to you um, in terms of not just access to reporting a story, but physical harm is still very high. And I don't see a let up in that at the moment.
Very worrying times. Very worrying times. Um, a reminder, you're listening to, to a joint production, Bang to Rights and the Media Law Podcast. If you've got a view on any of that, please don't hesitate to, to contact us on Twitter at RightsBang. Or if you want to contact Tom on the Media Law Podcast, it's at Media Law Podcast. Tom, um, I wanted to talk about um, kind of what we're talking about, which is podcasting, really. And um, because we both... We, we talked at the, the outset of this episode about how, we, how we've come to these issues from kind of quite different perspectives, but we're both of us using the podcast partly as a way of, as a teaching tool. Um, that was certainly my approach to it, that I wanted to, you know, I, I've done a lot of podcasting in, in previous lives as a journalist and wanted to kind of continue that. But what would, what was your impulse for, for starting the Media Law Podcast? Well... What we wanted to do was produce a podcast that could do several different things. Um, and, and I guess that's kind of ludicrously ambitious. But we wanted it to be something that would be educational. and We could use it as a teaching tool um, for our own students, but also for students of media law, whether they come from uh, a legal course or a journalistic course. Um, more broadly, so outside of our own institutions. I mean, Paul and I come from different institutions anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted something that would appeal to students and could be useful for them. But also we wanted an opportunity uh, for scholars to disseminate some of their cutting edge work so we could take the discussion that you know, would be accessible to students, but that wouldn't stop at undergraduate level we could we could ramp up the complexity for those who wanted to uh, to stick with us through a more complex discussion and we also wanted to disseminate our research to practitioners in the field uh, with which we are connected so uh, to journalists and lawyers um, and we have seen anecdotally um, that we do have an audience that is made up of people from across that the, that spectrum, students, uh, fellow academics, and also uh, journalists, legal practitioners, indeed some judges, uh, I, I'm told, who listen to us. So it's, it's, it's an impact tool, it's a research dissemination tool, and it's a teaching tool for us. At least that's what we hope. Yeah, I, I found it really, well, both interesting and, and really genuinely rewarding that um, Initially, we were targeting students. Our idea was that this would be something that we would use, I guess, kind of internally um, with here, just here on campus as a teaching tool. But then pretty much immediately, it got wider interest through, well, through the Twitter account um, at, at Rights Bang. Um, and then the, the first people who started expressing an interest in it were other journalism teachers, other, other media law teachers. And then it seems to get a considerably wider traction from there. You know, a couple of lawyers are, are now following us and listening to our episodes. And it's been, it's been really good, first of all, I guess, to realize that there, there is actually an audience for the kind of stuff that we do. Cause it is, I guess, notoriously dry and, um, not something that you can kind of just talk about in the way that we're talking about it. So that's been, that's been really exciting, actually, and uh, made me think, well, it is probably something that's worthwhile and, and actually something that's worth continuing with. Is that how you feel, too? Yes. And uh, I, I think, I mean, maybe we're lucky in law because by, by the standards of some legal disciplines, um, media law is pretty exciting. <laughs> yes. um, so 
now we get to do the sexy cases with the celebrities and 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 you know, people hacking each other online and, and it's all this political intrigue which um some would say um though obviously i must remain neutral um some would say that this is um more interesting than some drier areas uh, of the law um but certainly i i i think you know the, the, the podcasting is underused as an educational tool um it's certainly underused in law um that might be because there are some subjects that are just too dull even for podcast podcasting but i think there are some fascinating areas of law that actually you know when i go you know when i when i go out and i talk to my friends who are not lawyers about the law they're often very interested in some of the stuff that i'm doing um so there is a broader audience out there for the interesting bits uh, i guess we just have to work out what those are and to uh to promote them in that way um but i think you know this sort of cross-disciplinary way of doing things where you know the the lawyers who work in this area interact with the journalists whose advice um who are going to rely on the legal advice to need to know the legal position but who are also going to be putting that legal advice into practice in their daily lives that that dialogue is uh, is invaluable. Yeah, yeah. And Ellie, it's been interesting too to kind of diversify the pro- the, the podcast a little bit, so that you know we've we've had you reporting from Hong Kong, and we've picked up another of issues in the kind of the ethics of of reporting particular stories, whether it's asylum seekers or or a number of other privacy issues that have have arisen. And we've also kind of tried to include the students as reporters for. Um, bang to rights as much as, as much as possible. So it's it's been good for me and I think for you as well to see us kind of diverting away from strictly media law issues into wider ethical issues in reporting. Yeah, and I think you know ultimately it helps for, for, for students and for anyone who listens to this sort of thing. It helps contextualise the role of journalism and the considerations that that journalists have to um, have to think about in daily practice. Yeah, and speaking of teaching tools, I think you're in one of our teaching rooms at the moment, so I can feel there's a bit of a student life intruding on what we what we're doing. So I think maybe at this point we might we might start to wrap up. Um, so uh, you've been listening to to Bang to Rights and, and to the Media Law Podcast, a joint production between the two of them. Tom and I we decided to to share the experience that we've had. So it's been great talking to you, Tom. Thanks very much indeed for for inviting us onto the Media Law Podcast. Well, likewise, Pete, it's been really good talking to you guys. Uh, thank you for having us. So uh, if you want to listen to future episodes of Bang to Rights, you can pick us up on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang. Tom, where can people get uh, the Media Law Podcast? The Media Law Podcast is available on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on iTunes. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast. Great stuff. Um, Ellie Shamba Critchley, thanks very much indeed for coming on, uh, on Bang to Rights today. And Tom, thanks very much indeed for, for coming on Bang to Rights and for inviting us onto the Media Law Podcast. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Pete. It's been really good talking to both of you. Okay, that's it from us. Thanks very much indeed. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.